doing on time, on, on what it means to make the most of every moment that God has given us. And so today, we're going to, uh, like I promised last week, we're going to continue to build sort of layers on top of this teaching. And today we're going to begin talking about the rhythms of life, glory rhythms, I like to call them. And we use these, these ter- this term glory rhythms not just to apply to time. We've used this term to apply to other areas of the Christian life. And simply put, a glory rhythm means, if we understand what, what glory means in the scripture, which I've talked about before, it simply means that we live as if something is significant and weighty. There's a presence of something that is significant in our lives. And so in the Christian faith, what we are trying to glorify, who we are trying to glorify is Jesus. And so when I say glory rhythms with our time, what we're talking about is what it means to to have the, the rhythms of life. If you think about rhythm, sort of like what happens on Sunday music, they, they pray and plan it, our worship team. But when they play, there's just sort of something that happens. It's a natural rhythm that exudes out of the instruments they play. That is what we're talking about when we speak of God's time in our lives. We want time to be something that it's, it's sort of a tune we naturally dance to. And so glory rhythms simply mean what does it mean in the major areas of our life to live as if God is meaningful, God is significant, God is present with us at all times. And so the remaining weeks of this series, because we'll make a shift here as we get closer to Easter, we're going to launch a series on movement, essentially what it means to pray, prepare, and expect for God to do something amazing, something great in our lives and in the world. That's the nature of the Easter story. So we have a few weeks left in this, and then we'll jump into that series. But before we do that, I want to just give you the disclaimer I gave you a month ago when we started this series. One of the ways God moves in your life is by having space in your life for God to move. So if we're in a place in our lives where we got a ton of stuff going on and God is not present or invited into those spaces, it is very likely that we won't see his move in our life. And movement can be something sensational, although oftentimes it is not. It's not sensational from the outside looking in. But anytime God works in our lives or in the lives of people around us, that is something very sensational. And so we shouldn't equate the size of what God does with the meaningful impact of what God is doing. And so this series is aimed at helping us to identify whether or not we have a true time problem, a true busyness problem, or if because of the nature of our culture and sort of the desires of our heart, we might have just created a busyness or a time problem in our lives. And the way we create a problem in our lives with time or invite one into our lives is when we stop living based on the wisdom of Jesus, which is what we've been talking about each week. All these messages are online and I'd encourage you to listen to them if you haven't. When we don't listen to the wisdom of Jesus with our time, what happens is we will likely invite the tyranny of the urgent to shape our days, whatever is before us and must be done, or the preferences of our hearts, what we just like to do. And there are times when the tyranny, the the urgent and preference can be good. But if that's the only way we're seeing our time, it is likely going to cause us to have moments in life. We're going to plan our days and minutes at the expense of of years and seasons of life. And this is what Matthew 6.33 teaches us. Jesus like pointedly says there, we have to put God's glory first in every area of our lives and we let our love, the significance of God in our lives, become the, the, the sifting agent that sorts out everything we do in life. We seek first God's kingdom. We seek first his ways, his economy, his ideas. And then we let that shape the most meaningful and significant areas of our life. In particular, our work, our church and our mission, our family and the way we rest. Those are some of the rhythms we're gonna start talking about today. It's identifying what the first things first are in life. And so as promised, today we're going to keep pressing into this truth. We're going to continue to expound upon these ideas Ephesians and Matthew teach us by giving definition to what a life living for God's glory looks like with time in some particular areas. And I hope you will see after today's message that this is just another way of saying we're supposed to use our time to do good in the world. We're going to read a verse from Colossians that teaches us that today, a little later on. 
And in Thessalonians, just to give you an idea here, we're taught the same thing, that God has put us on this earth to do good works. That's one of the main reasons he has saved us and redeemed us, so that we can love people in the way that Jesus has loved us. And so remember, there is no idealism in what I'm saying here. When you come to restoration, I don't ever want you leaving this place, hearing a teaching from me or a conversation with a person. This is, I think, one of the strengths of our churches. We don't ever want to be a church that says, here's where God wants you to be, and we want you to feel bad about the fact that you're not here yet. We want us, all of us to understand that when we communicate these things, this is the idea of us recognizing there is a place God always wants us to be. And through the power of God and His Spirit in each other, these kinds of conversations help us to get there. So don't think that what we talk about today is the place you start at. All of us have different maturity levels when it comes to time. What we are talking about are the places we arrive at when we let Jesus become the Lord of our life and time. And so with that brief refresher in mind, let's look at the only truth that I want to share with you today. We'll we'll dialogue about one idea this morning. It'll be behind me. One of the marks that you're making the most of every moment in your life is when you use God's gift of time to make a difference in every, every area of your life. And so the idea is that those, those life charts we looked at a couple of weeks ago that, that sort of saw life as a, as a pie, right? We have work, we have sleep, we have play, we have leisure, we have home life, we have school, we have vocation. Most of us are running around with our lives cut up into pieces where the ideas Matthew teaches us and Ephesians teaches, the scripture in the whole teaches us, is that God wants to have significant influence in every area of those lives. He doesn't want the pie cut up. He wants to be shaping the pie. Now, this truth is central to the Christian faith, and it must play a role in how you understand the gift of time that God has given you and me. And I know calling time might sound a little hokey at first, a gift, like, you know, that time is a gift. It might sound hokey, but if you think about it, it really isn't hokey. Because if we really believe what James says, when he says that every good gift we have in life comes from our Father in heaven, then time has to be included in that gift box. And let me explain why. To have time on earth means that you and I are living. And if you and I are alive and we are in Jesus, if we claim to follow Jesus, this is for the Christian now I'm speaking, that means that God has a real plan for us. There is purpose and meaning. There is a glory rhythm he wants to institute in our life. There is a meaning and a purpose behind that. That is why he has given us life. And the way you live out that plan is determined by how you use your time. Your time is the way you run the play. It is the way you execute the good gift of life God has given you. And I think the real reason so many people do not make this this time-gift connection is because they see time as a utility to serve themselves or it's a utility that they serve. They're They're in tow to time. When theologically speaking, the exact opposite is true. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are slowly but surely making a decision to give him every single part of our lives for the rest of our lives. We are committing to let him be the Lord of our time too. That's the point of this. And last week we said the key to seeing your life and time like this is it it kind of involves us shifting ideas for a moment. We have to take what we are often in, in tow to, the urgent, right? That's where our time and our effort and our energy often goes. We have to take that same level of intensity that we often devote to the urgent. We have to turn around and then apply that to Jesus. And what that will do is put a yoke around the urgent. We'll know what the urgent is and what it isn't. And we'll have the reins of Jesus Christ leading us in that way. This is how we address a busyness or time problem. And what if I told you that that statement I just made about about focusing on Jesus with the same intensity that we do the urgent. What if I told you that that statement was much more than just a sermon point, an idea or or a set of words I threw up on a screen last week? 
What if I said that it was the foundation upon which Jesus said the whole Christian faith is built? The whole thing we're doing right now, loving God well and serving our neighbors. What if I told you this was a foundational idea? It's sort of in the cement of what the house of Christianity is built on. Or what if I told you that the key to dealing with all of life's issues, including busyness, was rooted in owning this truth in our hearts? That there really is a way to get to the place where we stop serving time and time starts serving us. Where we could know what these good works are, what God wants us doing with the gift of time he's given us. What if I said that that was possible? And I'm saying all this, I'm leading up because it is possible. There is a way for this to happen. And I'd like to spend a couple of minutes showing us how. So if you want to know what God's good work for your life is, you must first pursue God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. I want to take that intensity statement I talked about last week and reroute it in a deeper idea this week. This is a passage, or this, this verse anyways, I've mentioned it here before. I studied it when I was in seminary, and it was very meaningful to me. It's a statement, this idea of pursuing God with your heart, soul, and mind is found, it's sort of a, of a paraphrase from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy means literally the second law, deuteronomos, the idea where, where God is sort of re-reminding his people about all the things that matter most, all the law in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is like the, the secondary reminder so that they don't forget it. It's super important stuff. And just what's happening here is this is really the most famous command God gives his people in the Old Testament. And just prior to them entering the promised land, that's when he says this. They're about to enter an incredibly profound season of their life. And before God has them looking to the horizon of where they're going, he reminds them to not forget where they have been and who they need to be in the moment as they enter a new land. It's there Moses reminds Israel to never forget the most important commandment of their whole faith. As they enter the promise, then he says, love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, ancient and modern followers of Judaism call this teaching the Shema. We do too. We affirm this. This comes from a verb. There's actually a Hebrew verb that is being used to describe this. And what it simply means in that passage is Shema means listen and obey. That's the root of this. And so when we talk about the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, what God is literally saying is, is this is how we listen and obey. And the point of the Shema is to remind us of a very clear truth. If you want to fully know and experience God's grace in every area of your life, you have to pursue him with all you are. No idealism in that. We have to make the effort to pursue him with all that we are. Now, as Westerners in this part of the world, we hear a verse like this, and we are naturally inclined to do what I have been saying we should never do with the teachings of the Bible, every message I've given in this time series. We are naturally inclined to compartmentalize this stuff. That's how we look at life sometimes. I do this, 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 and then I put a little God into the mix. As opposed to saying, no, God is the mix, and this, 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 and this are shaped by him stirring the mix. And so what happens here is, man, unless you are reading a lot of Eastern literature, and remember, that's what this is in its origin. This stuff is written on the other side of the world. People think very differently there. When we hear heart, soul, and mind, we're automatically thinking, well, my heart, my soul, my mind, these are three things. How do I split them up? How do I figure this out? This is not how an Israelite would have understood this. This is a statement not meant to fracture life. It's a statement that assumes the exact opposite. Nobody listening to Moses in Deuteronomy would have understood this as splitting life up into these three categories. They would have understood this as the, the elements of life that make life. This is a way of saying every nook, every cranny, every piece of bone, sinew, and marrow in us is meant to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It talks about the cumulative whole, not separate pieces. And this teaching is so central to our faith that Jesus reissues it in the New Testament. 
In Matthew chapter 22, he reminds us that the key to the Christian life is first seeking your ultimate fulfillment in God. And that fulfillment is then supposed to define how you live and love others. On the contrary, if you find your fulfillment or things in people around you, then they will define what your love for God is and what that looks like. It's, it's a cart before the horse. Your time is going to be shaped by what you pursue and what you love. And so Moses and Jesus tell us that the key to the Christian life is to put God first and to love him above all others. Such a simple statement that is so incredibly difficult to live out at times. Is that a fair statement? Put God first. I could have just said that and then sent you all to lunch today, right? But it's not that easy to apply that at times, let alone let it shape what we do for the rest of our lives. But there's a promise in these truths that we can live this way if we rest in the power of God's spirit and rely on each other. And this is really true in how you understand what you do with your time. Because one of the great ironies of Christ-centered time management is that if you want to be more fruitful with your time, and this is sort of, the, this is sort of the, the affirmation of what I've been saying each week. I've told you each week that this is not a series on how to become more efficient with our time. There's a cap on that. There's only so many minutes in the day. And if you're super efficient with every minute, there's still a point where you have no more minutes. We're for efficiency. But these ideas are not talking about efficiency. They're talking about fruitfulness. And fruitfulness will create efficiency, but efficiency might not create fruitfulness. So if you want to be more fruitful with your time, you have to learn to give it away. This makes no sense. And oftentimes the most profound Christian truths start like this. If you really want to, you know, sort of be free of your sin, you have to enslave yourself to Jesus. That doesn't make any sense until you realize how light Jesus' yoke is and how great he is when he leads you out of that bondage, right? The same is true with time. It sort of doesn't make sense at first. But the more you live this, the more it will make sense. You have to learn to give your time away. And the first person you give it back to is your Father in heaven. Now this leads us to a pretty natural question. If we're giving our time back to God, what does God want us devoting our moments in life to? What does, what does the reality of that look like when we start handing our time back to God and letting him speak into it? Well, this question is deeply connected to what we spoke about last week, and we'll further unpack it today. It's the natural result of loving Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Consider this sort of the fruit that comes out of a seed that is well-planted when it comes to our understanding of God's time in our lives. And simply put, I reiterate what I said last week and want to expound on it a little more deeply. To make the most of every moment God has given you and I, you and I must integrate Jesus into everything you and I do, everything we do. And I, I, as I'm thinking about this, it's well worth noting that part of the way we integrate Jesus into everything we do is by letting him have the freedom to embed himself in our, in our lives. You know, it would be very easy to think we'll just leave here taking Jesus and trying to cram him into the categories of your life. I want us to think about that. But there's something much more profound about having that desire and then letting God weave himself, like I said last week, into the tapestry of our lives. It creates a much better piece of artwork. So the evidence that you and I are starting to integrate Jesus into everything we do creates this, this ethic, if you will, where we develop the ability to see there are a million things we can be doing with our time and in our lives, compartmentally speaking. You can add as many slivers to that pie chart as you want. But kingdom integration means you've recognized there are really only four key areas of life. Lots of things flow out of these areas. But there are only four areas of life that we must represent Jesus well in, where we must have a glory rhythm. And we call these glory rhythms. They are work, mission, and church, Family and rest. And I don't want you to think there's a hierarchy or, or a priority to this. There is maybe in a certain way. I want to talk about work today. That's really where we're heading. 
But these things are equally important. They feed each other. So don't say like this goes first, this goes second. Work shapes them all. We're going to talk that, about that here in a moment. These are all equally important in God's eyes. And for the Christian, what we do with these rhythms will either stand as an evidence of kingdom integration, that we have a true desire to live for Jesus in every area of our lives, or they will stand as an evidence of why we're so flustered or busy. And for those of us that are far from God or know people that are far from God, non-Christians, folks who, who don't even care about the, the values of Jesus' time, these rhythms, maybe not church, obviously, um, they matter to them. And what I found is that everybody has a version of church in their life, whether you're coming to one, engaged in one, serving in one, loving God in one, or you have your own version of church. If you think I'm making this up, you talk to anybody you know, and if you really get to know them, you'll find everybody is worshiping something in their lives. Everybody is pursuing something with their heart, soul, and mind. And so while church in this room simply means the way we gather as God's people, everybody's got a church they're going to. It's just typically their own preference. So this is a rhythm in their life. They're going to worship something. So this is applicable to all of us. It's also applicable to the way we talk to people if they have questions about this. And I want to illustrate something here. This, this is the reality of what happens when life competes for our time. If we misunderstand what I'm about to say, life cannibalizes itself as opposed to sort of freeing us to live meaningfully in these areas. And I want to illustrate this by calling your attention to a, to a different sort of chart. Look with me this morning behind me. There'll be two of them. The first one is you can see life is sort of stacked in a linear fashion. Work, leisure, and family, uh, that's rest, obviously, church and mission. We even separate church and mission. We'll get to that next week or two weeks. Just like the Shema, most of us see these rhythms as linear time categories. Our default point is that when we hear about these things, we tend to chop them up into blocks. I go to work, I rest, I am with my family, I am at my church, I am engaged in mission. We see them as this linear time block. That's what this first time chart shows. And a life that says, I go to work, I go to church, then I go on a mission trip, then I care for my family, all of that signifies compartmental living. And if you live this way, you're going to likely be inundated with busyness because your life just becomes a series of tasks that need to be done over and over and over again. It's like a Groundhog Day times 100. You wake up and do the same thing over and over again. Maybe even meaningful things that become somewhat meaningless at times because they're so rote. And consequently, anytime you are asked to use your time for something, you'll feel like you're adding something else to that list. I say there are only four main categories in life because I really believe biblically they are. But boy, if people were to map out their lives, this list can be like 25 inches long. We can just keep adding stuff to the end of that. That's efficiency, right? How do I squeeze more into my life? And so, for example, if I were to say to this person, get on Jesus' mission, this person would understand this as, I got to do one more thing in my life. And I already got nine things I'm trying to do in my life. And this is true with anything they're asked to do. One of the unfortunate heart attitudes of this person's life is that they often miss out on the moments God is putting before them because they're not analyzing what they're doing in life. They're not asking God to speak into that. And they might even be doing things at the expense of things God wants them to really be doing. They're not doing those things. They start to value tasks more than they do the opportunity to do good works for the people that God places before them in those tasks. Every one of these areas of life creates a place where God wants to bless us. He wants us to find fruitfulness in our work, faithfulness in our work. And there are people in your jobs, your schools, whatever your version of work is right now, that God also wants you to bless. And if we just see work as whatever our time block is, we will never see people like that. We will never care for them like that. And so this person really wears spiritual blinders in life. They go to work just to work. 
They might even like what they do, but they don't see the kingdom significance in what they do. They go to work to simply work, never opening their eyes to the reality that God has more for them to do in their work than just the work. That's true of everything we do as a church family too. When our folks are getting up early to lead worship and work with kids and we had a youth event Friday night and a cook-off yesterday, that's all work. But there is something so amazing connected to what that work creates. It's God's kingdom. Much more significant than just getting up and laboring, as valuable as that is. In this paradigm, folks, when they think of their families, they're more concerned with just raising children than they are with raising disciples. We have four raising children. Don't get me wrong. It's one of the ways God has decided the earth should flourish is by the constitution of the family, us caring for people and each other. But I'm telling you, if you separate mission from your family, what happens is you just raise kids. You don't make disciples. And I said last week, God's, God cares about every tribe and, t- tribe and tongue on earth. And as parents, if you have children, he cares about your tribe. And you will have more influence with your children than any other person in their lives will. That's, likely, that's the way it's supposed to work. So if we, if we segregate this from the way we raise children, we create a, a time, it's a time problem. There is no overlap in any of this stuff. Work is work, family is family, church and mission is going to a service twice a month, overseas on occasion, all of these are good things. But they're meant to be much more than just good things. If we disconnect them from one another, what happens is none will have influence on the other. And we start to live a very segregated life. A life where God is sort of engaged in something or an element of our life, but not all of life. He gets our heart, but not our mind, or our mind, not our heart, or our soul, not our heart. He gets our hands, but not our thoughts, whatever it is. God wants all of it. Now, on the contrary, the second chart shows a life rhythm that understands, that there'll be a change here in a moment, that there is a great deal of overlap in these glory rhythms. I want you to look at this. This is not a, a, a series of linear tasks. This sort of shows that there's a very blurry line in a lot of these things. They recognize that, this person does anyway, that the key to loving God with your time is less about doing more and more about being focused and intentional in the things God already has you doing. And when this happens, church and mission isn't something in addition to your work and family. It is a part of your work and family. You realize there are people in your life whom God wants you to serve at your desk, in your field, in your school, wherever it is. Your family is not just a thing you get to after work. It is, it, you have an integral responsibility siblings, parents, our children, whatever the relational, familial context is, there is a need, there's a, a valuable discipleship rhythm that God wants to, to have take place in the family. The church meets in a building, but the church is the people of God wherever we are. So when you are with your family, and if your family is in Jesus, you are part of the church there. Church is not just 75 minutes on Sunday or 85 if I'm feeling really peppy, you know? <laughs> it's much more than that you start recognizing there are going to be opportunities to serve others in Jesus' name in your workplaces and your social circles. There is overlap by God's design. He has made it this way. And our world has unmade it this way. And so in order to sort out whether life is linear or overlap for you, we're going to start talking about these rhythms. These are rhythms we were asked to start praying about last Sunday. So I hope you've come today with some spiritual receptivity to these ideas. If not, then this is, if you're visiting today or you didn't pray this week, that's all good. I just want to encourage you to ask God to start speaking to you through these things. Because we're going to spend most of our time today on this first rhythm, work. And we'll talk about others as the weeks come. But this idea of work is important because it really does govern the rest of the rhythms. And if we miss this, we can sort of forget the rest. And I I want to explain why by asking you a, a simple question. Are you living for the glory of God in your work? That's where we'll spend the rest of our moments this morning. Are you living for the glory of God in your work? Now, like it or not, 
God has built us to work. Work, depending on who you're speaking to, that can, that can be a term that really matters. It can be a term that is abusive for some people. It can be a term that does not matter at all. It can be a dirty word in our culture. We disdain work. There are people who see it that way. Having a healthy understanding of this rhythm is key to understanding all of the other rhythms because your view of work, when you understand it like God does, shapes just about everything you do in life. Because if we're going to be frank, just about everything we do in life is work. There is a working element to it. And I mean work with deep significance, not just the punching in, punching out idea, whatever it is. And I want to explain this. Keeping a job requires that you have a strong but balanced worth ethic. You've got to show up. You've got to be engaged. If you want to advance in a career, you are very likely going to have to have a good understanding of your work. Raising a family, as relational as it is, is work. I mean, any of you, you all were children at one point. Ask our parents, that was work. And when we have kids or siblings, it's work. It requires you to make investments in other people, oftentimes at the expense of yourself. Those of you with little kids are changing diapers right now. I don't have to do that anymore, and I'm really good about that. I got a dog now, though, that's a different kind of diaper we change on a regular basis. That's work. My kids wanted a dog. They just wanted a dog. But when I saw it, I was like, that's work. That's work. And I'm going to have to do it because you all are lazy, right? That's how it happened. They're not that lazy, but they really are, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Keeping a job requires, the, anything we're doing requires work. Doing homework requires work. Shepherding our, heart, our kids' heart requires work. As our parents age and we care for them, that's work. All work. Good work. Being a part of a church family Committed to Jesus' mission requires that we work at times. The cook-off last night didn't happen. It, it wasn't like we prayed and that stuff just fell out of heaven. There was labor behind that that created something really awesome. Even resting well, resting, frankly, to understand rest requires us to know what it means to work. You will abuse rest if you don't understand what work is. That's the way God designed it. And this is why the idea of working is so prevalent and significant in the Bible. I mean, I said this last week and I want to say it again. The very first image we have of God in the Bible is what? What's the first thing he's doing in Genesis? He is working to bring about the created order. The Bible opens and there is God working to bring about our lives. Astounding. The first image God presented to us of himself is this right here. This is the image he wanted us to have of him. And then he rests, right? Right at the beginning of the Bible, work and rest. That's where it starts. God's work really, really, really matters. That's the point of what Genesis teaches us. It is very meaningful, and it has very real purpose. And he's doing it to bring about a major good, life. The planet we live on and the lives that we have on this planet. And this is a perfect example of this idea we're talking about today. God is using his time to do good works for others. He could have done anything with his time. But what he did is he thought about us in it. That's astounding to me. His good work in creation, his good work right on the cross, we celebrate Easter. That was work. Theologians call this the work of the cross. That's literally what we call it. And the work of the cross is meant to honor God and benefit us. What he does on the cross is for the good of people so that they can see their sin buried and they can have forgiveness in him. So please hear me when I say this. One of the major ways God has chosen to do good works in our world. He begins by doing good works. But he continues his good works through our work, through our hands, what we do is how God continues to perpetuate his good works in the world. And this is why it's so important to have an appropriate understanding of why God made working such a substantial part of our lives. It's also very painful to hear people who have uh, imbalanced views of their work. We'll touch on those here in a moment. Whether that's vocation or even the way we see the, the, the church family, the, the people of God. You know, some folks see church life 
as uh, I, I had it put to me this way years ago, and I think it's pretty profound if you think about it. Some folks see the work of the church as sort of like our leisure resort for personal benefit. It's sort of like Walmart. We go in there and, you know, we want a cheap TV and a can of beans and Rotel and chips to watch the Super Bowl. We want it cheap. We're going to argue. We're going to negotiate. We come to the church and we see the church as a place that just provides us stuff. And the church does provide stuff. There's no question about that. But when you read the scripture, Jesus talks about the church in a very different way. He refers to it often as a, as a sort of a cutting-edge hospital, an infirmary, whose purpose is to help those heal whom have identified that there is brokenness in their life. And so part of what we are receiving is meant to help us heal, to grow in God's favor, to grow in his status, to grow in our wisdom before him. And if we just see work as something that somebody else does, then what happens is, is the church becomes more like a leisure resort and less like a like a first-class ER caring for the needs of those who are, who are very ill, spiritually speaking. Indisputable that God designed you and I to, to delight in our work, whatever it is and wherever it is, not to be in bondage to it, in the church or outside of it, to be a witness for God in all of our work. And in short, work is a God-ordained thing. If you reduce work to a series of linear tasks, like that first philosophy, you're likely just going to miss out on the blessing of what it means to make the most of every moment in the area you probably spend the most raw time in. As Americans, we work more than just about anybody on earth. And so I do not think it is coincidental that our enemy has made, it, made a way for us to take what is one of the most significant things in our lives. In fact, it's pretty fair to say that in the world today, work is almost more valuable than family. I'm not even saying I agree with that. I don't agree with that. But that is the way a lot of people see their work. It trumps their family. You think there's a coincidence that we are separating God from our work. No, there isn't. I think it's a place that's going to cause us to, re at minute, minutes today will cause us to potentially regret seasons down the road. What we create, what we're doing today, shapes tomorrow. We will miss the blessing of making the most of every moment that God puts in our path. And I'll give you a great example of what I'm talking about here. Making the most of every moment in your life. Um, I've talked to several people in the, in the medical field uh, that are, for example, nursing or they're doctors or um, we have some folks at our church and I was actually talking to a friend uh, in Louisiana this week. He's a, he's a pastor and he also has a hospice ministry. So this guy goes into hospitals and he just loves caring for people. He's using his time to do good things for other folks. And I was thinking about this. Years ago, I had somebody tell me this story. It was a conversation with a nurse who told me how she was able to use a nursing platform as an opportunity to make the most of every moment for God by deeply comforting a couple who had lost a baby. They had to deliver a stillborn baby. That's a terrible thing. You know, we lost a child. We had a miscarriage years ago. And it was, it was world rocking. In my mind, I still know that I have another kid. That's the way I feel it. It has a painful moment. But what happened here is that person who loved Jesus recognized that moment in another person's life. And they had an opportunity to care. And they did. What they did was they took the light and life of Jesus and they shone it, or shined it on a very dark moment in a person's life. That is amazing. That is a good example of, of making the most of every moment in your vocation, whatever it is, whomever it is. You meet a need, you listen to a burden, you return a phone call, you grab a cup of coffee, whatever it is. We see opportunities to light up the darkness and we light it up in whatever ways profound, or simple that God provides for us. Now I want to issue a caveat here. I want you to hear me when I say that I want you to represent Jesus well in your work. I don't want to get a prayer request from you guys next week that says, I was fired for religious harassment. Please don't do that this week. That's not what we're going for. 
to live for God in your work doesn't mean you ask me for a good Bible study and then you start screaming at people in your lunchroom. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Whatever your metaphorical version of that is. It just means you have to be aware that in your work, God is going to work through you. He wants to. And if you will permit him to, if you'll be okay with that, he will work through you. You're going to have stories like this. Because the people who have stories like this recognize their work matters, but it's also got a significance that far, it transcends the boundaries of this world. This is what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. This will be behind me. I want you to, to get another example of what the Apostle Paul tells us about this. He says, for we are God's handiwork. Like he is saying, God's great work brought us about. And we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not only is work important, but God has prepared them. He is paving the way in front of us. Tomorrow, God is mindful and aware of good works. He's, put the, he's already put them in your life. They are there for the taking. If you will actually you know, press into that. Prepared in advance, created in Jesus, prepared in advance to do good works. It's sort of like he threw a softball at us. We just got to swing the bat. So right now in everything you're doing, whether it is your job, whether it is your family, the way you, you serve at Restoration, your school, your work, God has already prepared good works for you to do in advance for him. He's already paved the road. And the question now becomes, will you just open your eyes to start looking for them? Will you be mindful of the way God is already working in your life and in the lives of the people that are in your life? I hope you will. And in order to live this way, I sort of have to say one last thing this morning. In order to live this way, it is very important for us to talk about the imbalances that will keep us from living this way. So I want to sort of begin wrapping up by talking about two major time imbalances that will keep you from living for God's glory in your work. They're pretty obvious ones, working too much or working too little. Now, sometimes we work too much and use it as an excuse to exclude God from living for God's glory in, in your work and in mine. And what this simply means is we, we get to this place where work becomes something, it, it just dominates the pie of life. That, those, those charts we've looked at, work just essentially runs from A to Z and nothing else can compete with it anymore. And there really is a growing trend amongst this with God's people. And that's because this is a growing trend in our culture. These two things cohabitate with each other at all times. There's a growing tendom, a, a trend excuse me, amongst God's people today that creates a serious challenge for understanding our work like this. It's very common today to hear people who have a job or a form of work which is deemed a good, normal, and necessary part of life by God to then, that thing creeps into their life to the place where it, it becomes an, an, a neglect in other areas of life. They sort of are so enamored or maybe so bound by the urgent that it starts to pay dividend or, or consequences in other areas of life. It becomes the reason they can no longer serve God in his mission. It becomes the reason that they struggle in their families. It becomes the reason that you can't sleep at night. There, there are no other investment zones in life. Or maybe the investment zones, you really want them, but they just cannot compete. And consequently, all of those other areas of life begin to be robbed. Anytime something new comes up, a, a project, they're backing out of something. They're pushing away from something. Anytime a busy season pops up, they're backing out of something. It is the quintessential example of compartmental living. It's like whack-a-mole. You're just hitting the next mole, and you're hoping it works out. And all those time categories are getting pushed around based on the urgency of the moment. They are owning us. We are not owning them. And I say this with sincerity, possibly at the expense of the future seasons of our life. So in this person's mind, Jesus is relegated to a section of life. He's a piece of that pie, most likely ever shrinking, because they keep taking time from other areas of life to feed the glory of working. And we talked about glory earlier on in this series. Well worth listening to that message if you haven't. 
That is what the, the stars of our life orbit around. That is the sun, our true north, which we said last week is almost always driven by a desire for a greater level of comfort, whether it is status, security, success, or lifestyle amenities. That is usually what is driving working as, as a main glory rhythm in life. And so if you live like this, you'll never have time to seize a God-given works opportunity in your career or anywhere else because that takes time, not even necessarily more time. It just means you have to be sort of intentional in that time. You have to be aware of, of how God's already working in the time because the reality here is that God is not a first thing in this person's life. And I say that with a very benevolent, I mean that very benevolently because I've had this rhythm in my life and probably will have it again. And I'm going to share a story with you here in a moment. There's no judgment in this. The bottom line here is that this is a very real thing that we often struggle with. In the, in the event of trying to work, we forget about the Lord. Now, I want to say something here, because maybe you're sitting here saying, Anthony, you know, this is really easy for you to talk about, about weaving God into your life, because you work at a, a church, right? You're saying, like, this stuff is, is, is probably easy for you. You don't get what it's like to be where I'm at. And I'm going to say that's a good point. I don't get exactly what it's like to be where you're at um, because I'm not exactly where you're at. But I, I want to say something here. There's a however. However. And you know me. Howevers matter. I'm going to say something. I want to say to you something and show you something about that. This same challenge is true for those who work in the church because it's still work. Listen, there is enough logistical, organizational, contractual, administrative stuff to do in the church. Thankfully, Abby Alam is our administrator. She does a lot of that because when she does it, my neck starts doing this. There's so much of this stuff to do that I learned very early on in my ministry. I, I can spend all my days managing the affairs of God without actually managing the real affairs of God. It is so easy to be blinded by the urgent of what's coming up at all times that you, you forget about this. And compounding the problem, just so there's some transparency here, by nature, I am a workaholic. This is sort of the way my dad wired my brother and I. And this is because of two main reasons. The first is that I just, I generally really do like working. I do. I always have. And if you don't believe this, I'll take this out of the sensational and put it into the normal. If you don't believe this, you just have to ask my wife and family about our differing views on how we see free time in our house on a Saturday. When the stars align, I try to take Saturdays off, you know. And when we get to Saturday after a long week, my family wants to chill and hang out. They want to, like, watch TV and relax and, and read books and play in the front yard. And, and I'm really, really good with that. I'm supportive of that for, like, 30 minutes. And, and then after that, I'm twitching. Like, I start going nuts. My head is, like, you know, it's not right. And, and I start getting really, like, caffeinated and motivated. And I'm saying, like, well, we got to clean the house and we got to paint the walls. It's fall. Let's rake the leaves. Uh, this is where my mind starts going. I mean, two weeks ago, I tried to convince my eight-year-old daughters, both of them, to help me build an addition on the house in the two hours we had in that afternoon. That's what I was going for. I was like, we got two hours. Let's knock it out. We can frame this. That is where my head is thinking. I am ridiculous at times, and I really, really know it. Like, I know it because working is my bend. I just like working. I prefer it typically over rest, and that can create some imbalances. So one, I love working. Two, I just love the kind of work I'm doing. Just being very honest, um, I've pastored now for just about 20 years, and it's, it is just, I've grown in my affection for it, and I genuinely, genu genuinely believe that is because of the passion God's put in my heart for it. And so it's like a double whammy. Not only do I love working, but I love doing what I'm doing. And I want to show you how real this is for me. My point here is that two weeks ago, one of my eight-year-old daughters, the other one, the, other, the one that didn't speak about the chili cook-off this morning, Mia, came up to me. And this is a true story. 
She walked into my office, because right now the offices of restoration are still in my front living room. We rent everything we do in Port Orange, but my main study is in my home. And she walked into my office, and she handed me a post-it note, and it's behind me. I saved it and filed it. She handed me this thing two weeks ago. That's what she said to me. And I spanked her. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. It's like, you can't tell daddy that. What you talking about? No, I didn't do that. I read that, and the first thing I thought was, you're interrupt oh, you're interrupting me. And then I realized, like, no, this is not a good thing. Like, her observation of my life at that moment was this, and I had that stuck to the bottom of my computer so I could see it. It really said something to me. I was teaching all of you sermons on time, and my daughter handed me that. I was crazy. So listen, this issue knows no boundary. Wherever there is work, whatever that work is, there is a chance that we can abuse it, and there is a chance that we will be abused by it if we're not careful. It will compound, not cure a time problem. And we've got to have Jesus' wisdom on that. We have to see that. So overworking can definitely be a challenge, a problem. Now, on the contrary, okay, sometimes we just don't work hard enough. This is also a rhythm that people have in their life. It's a sign that we've excluded God from the gift of time he's given us. We've referred to this very early on as leisure-centered living. That's what I like to call it. And this is a person who becomes comfortable in doing no work, or as little work as possible. And what this does is it takes advantage of those who do work. It's at the expense of others. Where there is 100 pounds of load to bear, if one carries five and the other carries 70, there's an imbalance there. What happens here is uh, the leisure lifestyle also takes place at the expense of other people. On their chart of life, leisure drives the pie. It's the biggest slice of what they do, and everything else revolves around it. I shared this story with you three years ago, so I know you remember it well. I want to re regurgitate it. Uh, I'll never forget this. this. The most kind of shining example I have of this in my life was at a church planning conference in Orlando. And at that conference, I was, uh, I was asked to have, like, conduct in light interviews with three young men who were wanting to plant a church. I was just supposed to sit down with them and encourage them, and that's what I did. I had three consecutive meetings in a row, hour after hour, talking to young folks, trying to figure out what to do with their calling. And I sat down with this guy, and we were talking for about 20 minutes, and he was working at a restaurant at the time, and he got a phone call in the middle of our time. And I'm usually pretty sensitive to that, I mean, if it's something serious. And I just said, hey, you know, if you got to grab that call, grab the call. And he said, you know, thank you, it's my boss at work. So he picked up the call, and for five minutes, just about, I heard him talking. And I was sort of pausing the conversation because, you know, I'm, I'm hearing half of it. And he's got some interesting gestures and he's rolling his eyes. And eventually what happens is, is he hangs it up and he says, I'm sorry about that. And I said, hey, no worries. I said, um, but maybe like if it's okay, since we're talking about your life and who you are and what God's wanting you to do, I said, getting some insight into your work would be helpful. I said, what was going on there? And he said, well, I work at this restaurant and I closed last night. And he said, and I left, I, apparently I forgot like a bunch of very expensive food. I left it out on a counter overnight. And when my boss came in this morning and opened, he said the food was soured. And, he said, and obviously what his boss was calling about was the fact that this was a great expense to them, that all this food was not stored properly. And throughout this conversation, every third sentence, he was saying something like, and this is a Christian guy. This is a Christian man. That's what he kept saying. And then he went on to tell me this had happened multiple times before. And this time the owner gave him a pretty stern reprimand. He said, it went like this. If, if this happens again, you're not going to be working here anymore. Like, I can't, I can't have this anymore. You've got to remember to put this stuff up. So this is a consistent issue in this guy's life. And what was funny was he, this is, this is where the conversation turned into a counseling session in my mind. This, this young man then said to me, um, you know, that dude just ruined his testimony with me. 
He didn't show me enough grace. That's literally what he said. He said, I cannot believe that a, a Christian man would speak to me like that. And I don't think it was his tone that was the problem. He, I didn't hear any screaming on the phone. He, was, he had a problem with the fact that the, the nature of the call said, if you do this again, there's going to be a consequence. And I sat there listening to him. And then he said, uh, so, so what do you think? And me being me, I told him. <laughs> I, mean, I was nice about it, but I said, listen, have you ever thought about what it looks like f- from the angle of your boss? Like what, on the other end of the phone, I wonder if he's got a, a good friend and he's saying, you know, I got this young Christian guy who's telling me he wants to be a pastor one day and he cares so little about my work that he keeps leaving hundreds of dollars of food out on my counters every night. He's taking a paycheck from me, but he is essentially costing me more than, than just a paycheck. I said, did you ever think about what that kind of witness is portraying to everyone you're watching? And, and the fact that you're kind of throwing this guy under the bus. And it was clear that it never crossed his mind. We had a good chat about that. He was very receptive to it. But the root of what we're talking about now is this. That's what happens. Is you can get so blinded to carelessness, leisure, that you actually forget that it can hurt people. I mean, think about what would happen if you dialed 911 or had a fire and nobody showed up. That carelessness hurts people. Working too much or not enough, signs of a time issue. And for very different reasons, both of these ethics trade living for God's glory for the glory of comfort. The first seeks comfort by overworking for the stability in life, which imbalances your time. The second seeks comfort on the back end of another person and squanders time, another's time often. The bottom line in both situations is this. Neither lives for the glory of Jesus, and both will have a hard time doing good works for others because they have excluded Jesus from their time and their work. And this is why representing Jesus well in your work, no matter what it is, is important. It has a direct effect on the other rhythms, ones we'll talk about over these weeks, family, our, our understanding of our identity in Jesus and his church family, and even the way we rest. Let me tell you something. If you work too much, you won't rest. And if you don't work enough, you won't understand rest. You won't really, it will not do what God said it should do. Six days I work and one day I rest. That is supposed to be like a rehydration in life. Whatever your rest rhythms are, I've said this before, we don't all get a clean day off anymore in the world we live in. But we have to figure out how to have rest rhythms in a world where work is sort of trumping the day. Now I promise this is the last thing I want to say here. This is the end. It is very likely as you come to clarity in your life. This was sort of sparked by a conversation I had last week with one of our people. And this is going to actually become a full-blown message before this series is over. Um, It's very likely that as you come to clarity in your life in these areas over these next weeks, uh, that some people in your life might not be happy with these decisions. If you have an epiphany on time, I need to work less, I need to work more, I need to fill in the blank. There are other people that are going to be involved in that, and there likely might be some consequences with that. There might be some people in your life that might not be happy with that decision. For example, kind of consider this as a primer here, if you are coming to, the terms, to terms with the fact that something needs to change. If you have friends who have a leisure-centered life, and you realize that you need to work more, and you start reprioritizing your life around that, because you've not been putting those first things first, they might not be pleased with you when you're no longer to hang, able to hang out every day. And that is not because you're not able to hang out. That is because you're failing an expectation they have. That's a people-centered glory. Got to be careful with that. You want people to matter. You want to listen to people. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, we live rogue in the world, but I'm saying if people's expectations defy the wisdom of Jesus, that expectation has to be a secondary priority in our life. We might listen to it, but Jesus' voice trumps them all. Or maybe... And I think this is going to be the more likely one for all of you, because I know a lot of you. You all are a lot, you're, you're very hard workers. I mean, the nature of what we do here each week signifies that. And this is just a segment of your life. Maybe you've been taken advantage of at your job, because you're being asked to do things that are just ridiculous, some, somewhat unhuman, inhuman. So much so that it starts taking a toll on your life, your health, and your family. And if you're thinking like, you know, I need to talk to my boss, and I need to acknowledge I'm a super hard worker. 
I'm good at what I do, but I just need to slow down a bit. I got to have some boundaries here because this thing is ruining my life or, or beginning to, to fracture a stress life. If you come to this conclusion where you need to talk to your boss and say, hey, for my health and in order to remain productive, like I can't work 105 hours a week anymore. I just can't do that. That might be a sticky conversation. It could be. You might have a boss that really gets it, but you might have a boss that doesn't. But I just want you to hear when it comes to stickiness and consequences, there is a path of consequence we're already choosing. It is less sticky, you know, having this conversation. That's, to me, a less stickier alternative than it is to lose your health or your family. <laughs> it just is. And I'm not, I'm not undermining the, the significance of that, these consequences. I'm just saying you almost have to figure out where, where, you, where you throw your dice. And by throwing your dice, I simply mean where the emphasis, the drive is. And that's driven by the first thing. Whatever your first things are in life are going to help you to understand where you begin to migrate and what, if any, consequence you are willing to take. And so as we close, I want you to think about this stuff this week. I want you to ask yourself if these glory rhythms are a priority for your life. Are they linear or overlapping? If you're unsure about these rhythms and how they interact with each other, we're going to talk about them more, but I don't want you to think you've got to wait a week here. If you have questions about this, let us know that on that connection card. Contact us this week. If you want to grow in this area, let us know. We're here for you, and I want to remind you, we're all in the same boat as you. This is our boat. We all work and do stuff. So as we close this morning, ask yourself, are you loving God with your heart, your soul, and your mind? Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his glory rhythms in your work? I will ask the same question of myself this week. And what is it that you're going to do about it? What will we do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, for the goodness of work. Thank you, God, for the fact that you, not only do you teach us about work, but you exemplify it. I mean, the whole story of your kingdom coming to earth is you working for the benefit of us. And so we are thankful for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would take our cues when it comes to the rhythm of work, not from anything around us, but from you in heaven. You have shown us how to work and how to rest. And I pray, Lord, that wherever we are in this spectrum, if we are today thinking, you know, we really have this figured out, and that's good, and I'm sure many people do, it is my prayer that you would burden that person to help somebody who doesn't have it figured out. And if you come to the conclusion this morning that you don't have this figured out, I pray you would know that if you are transparent with your Father in heaven, who already knows this rhythm in your life, that you will be met with mercy and goodness and grace, that God wants not to judge you in this area, but to help you become more like his son in it. So I pray we would be humble enough to explore this rhythm in our life today and pray about it this week as we leave and go about our daily business. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.